0: is Sarah Lohman and I am one half of the Master of Social Gastronomy. This is my co-host Jonathan Soma right there. Uh, I am a culinary historian. I wrote the book Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Uh, Soma, I never, I don't know what you do. I don't
1: do anything. Great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this is it. This is all Soma has nowadays. Yep. He runs an apartment at Columbia, which seems pretty important. He's also the co-founder of the Brooklyn Brainery and he currently owns five cats, six cats.
1: No. Yes yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and we're here to rock your world. Are you ready? Yeah. Oh, you sounded half ready okay. You're ready? Um, so here's how this is gonna go tonight. Uh, Master such a Kasonri mm What? <laughs> I don't know if I need to drink more or less. <laughs> Masters of Social Gastronomy runs in three parts. In the first part, I'm going to talk, and our topic tonight is tea and coffee and everything caffeinated. So I'm going to talk first about uh, the history of tea, and then we're going to take a little break where we can get another beer. Then in the middle, we have story time, which we tell like little nuggets of things that maybe didn't fit in our presentation. was a little bit of a digression. And then you're going to talk. What are you talking about tonight, Soma?
1: Talking about story time or oh no, you're time? like main thing. Story main time main can things. come later. Caffeine is what I'm talking about. Caffeine. It's a coffee, <laughs> and tea, by the way. <laughs> no big deal. Was that your whole? Was that your yeah? Whole talk? yeah you away. can go. It's fine. <laughs> Doesn't matter.
0: First, we just have a couple news and updates. Give me some slides. What are we talking? Oh wait, wait, I should talk no, about uh, this. Uh, okay. Here's our um uh, social medias. I'm at Four Ponds Flower. Brooklyn is dangerous scarf. And you can also hashtag OMGMSG as well. Okay, now go to the next slide. Bam. Uh, MSG and Kavya are in love. We're getting married. I know. Thanks, guys. Um, Starting in 2019, we're going to be in this space the last Monday of every single month. So uh, our first show of 2019 is January 28th. We just decided the topic, and it's going to be romance and revenge. Romance and revenge. The history of aphrodisiacs and poisoners. So <laughs>
1: it sounds like we just came up with like a really fly name in like We've ten done this talk once before. Yeah,
0: uh, it is such. Oh, I mean, it has some of my favorite elements of any talk we've ever done. So I'm excited to. Uh, talk about it. Soma talks about the time that he ate a uh, cow's penis, a bull's penis, specifically. A bull, yeah, uh, not a cow. Uh-huh.
1: Um, which is <laughs> a
0: Turkey cow testicles, cow. too. Which is some of the Did grossest it. things I've ever... And I actually wrote this talk about... Um, <laughs> oh God, it's so awful. I wrote this talk about female poisoners about a month before I <laughs> divorced my husband. Which is <laughs> Not funny at all, and wasn't it? An it's funny. Um, so it's a real gem for, uh, that we're pulling out of the archives. So that's January, and then in February, we've decided, too, this is gonna be an all new talk that I'm super excited about. We don't have a jazzy name yet, but I'm thinking of just calling it Poop with an exclamation, exclamation point, because <laughs> that's what's gonna be about. It's gonna be about what goes in must come out, is our plan. So you're gonna do the, the microbiome, We're gonna bring up, hopefully, someone who's an expert in history of toilets, who's an awesome educator, and I think I'm just gonna talk about poops. We'll see. (laughs) So that's number one. (laughs)
1: Great. Are we moving on? Mark your calendar. Yeah, move on, move on. All right, all
0: right. Um, Also, just the Master of Social Gastronomy podcast is live. That goes up the um, third Monday of every single month. You can find it both on SoundCloud, iTunes, and I think Stitcher. Who could say? Definitely iTunes and SoundCloud. That's all my news. What do you want to say?
1: All right, please welcome to the stage our first speaker of the evening, Sarah Loman of <laughs> Four Pounds <winner. laughs>
0: All right, just so we're on the same page, this shoe is broken. So um, you know, I know. Now you don't have to think about it anymore. Let's talk about tea. <laughs> Not that it's any of my business. Um, Let's we'll talk about what, what it is. What is tea? So tea comes from a evergreen bush. Uh, It tends to grow in places that can both get snow in the winter time but have very long, hot summers. Um, It is indigenous to uh, parts of China and India, uh, but now is grown a lot of Indonesia and wider parts of China and India and Japan. And also, there's one tea plantation in America outside of Charleston, North Carolina, South Carolina. (laughs) I got to pull it together, everybody. (laughs) So uh, we actually drink, the hot water is poured over tea leaves. This is what it looks like when they're fresh. We harvest uh, new growth. And the first new growth of the season is, is usually the white tea, like very, very small, fresh leaves. Um, and after the leaves are picked, they go through, first a process called withering, which is just to let them dry slightly. And um, the longer you let it wither, the more oxidized it gets. So the original teas that were consumed in the regions that tea is from, in particular, China is where it's believed tea was started being consumed in about 600 BC. Green was the tea that people drank. And up until, I mean, it's still the the kind of standard prize tea within Chinese and Japanese culture. And the greener, the better. There are a variety of ways to grow tea and process tea to lock it in this like hyper green state, like this fresh mown mown lawn kind of flavor. And I think to give you a sense of that, you've probably had some interaction with matcha in your short lives. This is the, like, so matcha actually comes from China. It's a very finely ground, very green tea. It gets that green because, you are on one hand controlling the chlorophyll content. There's a certain type of green tea that is grown in shade for the last month of production. That makes the plant like bust out a lot of chlorophyll to capture the sunlight that's coming through and you end up with this hyper green tea. This is sort of a, a very finely powdered version of that. Matcha is also the tea used in the traditional Japanese tea ceremony. Interestingly, it came to America not as a beverage at first, but through pastries. Um, in the early 2000s, Uh, these green tea pastries just started appearing in Parisian bakeries, but they started at the bakery of Sarohiro Aoki, who um, uh, Japanese culture is sort of obsessed with French pastry, and there's usually every French famous patisserie has a Tokyo location, and every famous Tokyo patisserie has a Paris location, and that was the choice here. So he's been acknowledged as the first pastry chef to integrate green tea into his baked goods, and it's either through the Japanese population or through French bakeries that it came to New York City in, like in 2008 ish, about a decade ago. Um, and then after it was in our pastries is when we started seeing it more commonly as a drink. And now places like Starbucks have a matcha latte. So it's a, kind of a bigger part of our culture. But this is that kind of very, very green tea is the standard of Japanese and Chinese culture. Um, black tea, on the other hand, uh, was what was being exported to, uh, to England, to Europe, essentially. And that's, in the opinion of the Chinese and Japanese, that's the shitty tea. That's the tea that they fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> you get black tea when you've left your tea leaves to wither or dry out too long. And to stop that withering process, you, um, you steam it, essentially. That's how you, you stop it from continuing to brown. So with green tea, sometimes they steam it without withering at all very early in the process. Black tea is tea leaves that have withered for so long that they've oxidized, and then really bad tea that was also like not only too oxidized but like somehow off in flavor or whatever. They would smoke, and then they called it lapsang souchong. They sold it to Europe, and Europeans loved it. <laughs> so basically, the history of tea is um, that the, Br- uh, the British East India Company they established their charter um, and gained a monopoly um, trade with China in the middle of the, uh, the end of the 16th century. That established a reliable trade route. That's when tea started coming into Europe regularly. Some green tea, mostly the shitty tea, that Chinese merchants were like, ha ha, oh no, this is our best, take it, ha ha ha. Thank you for your money. That's pretty much how the trade went. So tea comes into Europe um, really in the 17th century, starts getting drunk regularly by the end of the 17th century. And one of the reasons it gets popular, particularly in England, is that um, although coffee was a more common beverage, women weren't allowed into coffee houses. And coffee at that point wasn't really prepared in your home. It seemed a little too complicated. You went out for a cup of coffee. But these coffee houses were male-only establishments. Interestingly, you can see in this image here, all of the men are there doing their, having their man talk. Um, oh, there's a, oh, there's an O over her face. I apologize. The proprietor is a woman. So women could be, could own and serve the coffee in coffee houses, but they couldn't go to the coffee house. Since tea houses were newer, those rules hadn't been set up, so women could actually go to tea houses and uh, purchase tea in tea houses. So that made it more popular than coffee in Britain at that time. However, not everyone was happy about the fact that women could purchase and drink tea. Um, and by not everyone, I meant mean that men were not happy about that. <laughs> and it was said that women shouldn't drink tea because they sit around and gossip while they drink tea. And you know where gossip leads you? Straight to the brothel. So this was a thought at the time. So all of these assholes can sit around here just fine because they're not gossiping. They're talking about important politics or whatever, whatever, whatever. But if women are sitting around beverage talking, it's gossip. And that's going to make us into whores. So if you've learned one thing tonight, there it is. <laughs> um, Britain is also when milk and sugar began to be added to tea. That is not traditional in Asian cultures. Tea is drunk just straight. Um, so not only do they have this, like quote unquote, bad tea. Don't get me wrong. I drink black tea. I think it's delicious. But that was the attitude at the time. But then they are adulterating with milk and sugar. Um, a couple years ago, I was at the home of a British friend. And we were making tea. And he called me a milk and first kind of girl. <laughs> Is anyone here British? Have they heard that phrase before? <laughs> Do you, have you heard the term milk and yeah, first kind so of
1: girl? So
0: yes, that's actually amazing. All right, don't worry, I'm gonna repeat what he said. Because when I asked my friend what that even meant or where it came from, he was like, I have no idea. Um, but then I found this book on a trip to London. It's like a pretty thin, delightful book I found at the British Museum. And yes, so at the time that tea is becoming popular and affordable in the 18th century, as well as milk and sugar were too, and the reason they sort of get combined is because it takes tea from just a beverage to something that can get you through the morning without regular food. So it becomes the staple of the poor and working class, as well as something that's still enjoyed by people who are wealthy. So the class distinctions don't come within the drink itself. It comes within the porcelain, the crockery. So if you've got fine Chinese porcelain, you can pour your tea in first to brew and then add the milk afterwards. But if you have an inferior product, an inferior cup on your table, the hot water might cause the cup to crack. So you have to put your milk in first. So the traditional meaning of being a milk and 1st kind of girl means that you are sort of lower class. The more contemporary meaning means that you're a bit vulgar and rough around the edges, which I accept. <laughs> So we drank uh, tea in America, being that a large percentage, although not all of the early colonists were coming from Britain. But certainly, um, well, not here. We still had a lot of like Dutchness going on. But most of New England was filled with primarily immigrants from England. But in, when we were colonies before the Revolution, all of our commodities had to be bought through England. And that really pissed us off, because England marked the price up to really sort of make as much money off us as possible. So as a symbol of how angry we were about that, we dumped tea, one of the most heavily taxed atoms, uh, items, into Boston Harbor. And by uh, 1800, uh, tea had replaced beer as the preferred breakfast drink of the Brits. So by dumping this into the water, that's a whole nother, le- that's a whole nother lecture. <laughs> we'll get there another day. Um, By dumping this to the water, not only are we protesting being unfairly taxed and no taxation representation, but we're essentially dumping our British British culture. It's nothing, you know, we could have dumped literally anything into the water, but we chose this very symbolic item that by that time had represented what it is to be British. And we threw it in the water, and then we gave them the double bird. Um, (laughs) And because of that, tea became very unpatriotic during the revolution. There's a letter that John Adams wrote home to Abigail, who is one of these women, but I could not figure (laughs) out which one from the description. One of these ladies is Abigail Adams. Uh, There's a dog, and in the background, they're drinking coffee. He writes home uh, during the Revolution from the Continental Congress that he really loves tea, but he'll have to get used to coffee. And essentially, we have been a coffee drinking culture ever since. The reason that coffee outpaces tea in this country as opposed to basically the opposite way around in Britain is because of the American Revolution. We never really came back as a tea-drinking culture, except in one form, and that is iced tea. Did you know there's also a gif of Kermit drinking iced tea on the (laughs) Internet? (laughs) As long as it's tea, you can find a gif of him drinking it. Conspiracy craziness, for a while I was like, Uh, You know what? That's not Never mind. It's another lecture. This is Kermit's TED talk. I'm not even making that up. (laughs) So where does iced tea come from? Well, originally it was consumed in punch. So punch is the way we consumed mixed drinks before cocktails. Americans essentially invented cocktails. Punch was both consumed here in America, but also was invented really back in England and in Europe as well. Yeah, they're having a great time. If there's one thing I noticed in my slideshow tonight, it's just slides of dudes in wigs having a party. Uh, This guy has syphilis. That's why he's got those black dots on his head. The rest of them are just wasted. So in the middle of all this chaos is this bowl of punch and nice punch making tip with the holidays coming up. Instead of using water as a base, use tea. A lot of it feel like modern punches use like maybe a seltzer or a soda or something. But using a green or a black tea adds a liquid while adding sort of a base note flavor that you don't necessarily notice in the end. So this was the one instance when people were drinking tea iced. Um, and sometimes hot, There are hot punches too. But it was in America that it separated out as its own drink. And that's a lot because of our ice industry. So um, ice was pretty rare, hard to get to outside of the winter time until the middle of the 19th century. And then there was a big technological innovation in that historically, um, ice is carved off of uh, lakes in New England, and it had to be done by hand. But in the 1840s, a new tool was invented where you could horses could drag the saws. So it just made it a lot easier. And then a couple entrepreneurs seized onto this new tool for cutting ice. There was a lot more of it. And they just had this vision. And this is a drawing of ice being unloaded by slaves um, The ice is from Maine, and they're unloading it in Cuba. So by the 1860s, we are shipping ice not only to the American South, but also to the Caribbean, and also to India. So we're shipping it to colonized places uh, where there is essentially an Anglo population that would buy it. But they didn't stop there. Um, these major companies provided ice education classes to teach everyone what ice was and how to use it, usually serving something like ice cream or an ice drink. So we have a lot of ice that is now being shipped all over the world. It becomes sort of an affordable uh, treat for everybody, including New Yorkers, but that's also why it becomes particularly popular in the South where it is hot. You now have access to it, um, and people often forget that there is a time before we Had a lot of different things to drink. I mean, seriously, if you go to the bodega, like down the block, you know, how many different types and flavors of beverages will be there? In the 19th century, there was water, there was milk, there was alcohol of different varieties, and there was lemonade. And that was kind of it. So, having another cold beverage option like tea was a a big deal. You're, you're increasing your cold beverage options by 25%. <laughs> so by the 1870s, um, this is a recipe from Buckeye Cookery, which is a cookbook written in my home state of Ohio. And uh, she's this is a recipe for how to prepare iced tea. That's actually kind of interesting. So a few things that I notice is she says um, you can make it from either green or black tea alone, but it's considered an improvement to mix the two. I've never done that. I would try that. I don't know. Um, This is also essentially sweet tea. You brew it with a lot of sugar, and she says put a little lemon in there, a little lemon juice, a little bit of ice, makes a delightful drink. So um, 1870s is when we start seeing recipes for iced tea specifically. Um, By 1904 is a big turning point. It is featured at the 1904 St. Louis Oh God! It's the World's Fair, but it has some special name. It wasn't. The, it was like the something something exhibition. You know, they all have their cute names. Wasn't Columbian Exposition in Chicago, but the St. Louis 1904 World's Fair. Um, it was really hot that summer of the World's Fair, and so people were consuming a lot more iced tea than they were any of the hot bit beverages that were on offer. And um, I talk about World's Fair all the time because World's Fair. The World's Fairs were like Instagram before that existed. It Really, it was this place where every decade or so, everyone in the country would sort of come together, come to this one city. There'd be a variety of vendors, food vendors, people showing off their wares. And so many foods caught on after World's Fairs, um, lists and lists and lists of them, because people came to one place, and then they went home, and they brought those ideas. Ice tea being one of them. But of course, also in 1904, the temperance movement is really gearing up. So by the 1920s, when we're in the middle of prohibition, that's when uh, drinking iced tea com- becomes this very American thing. Because we went sober as a culture for 10 or 15 years, um, we still tend to drink mo- more non-alcoholic beverages than other countries. Um, temperance wasn't all that bad, honestly. We were pretty drunk before that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you saw that picture that one. (laughs) Thank you, Temperance Movement. I don't have syphilis. You did it. (laughs) That I know of. Okay, so I want to talk about a few modern teas, like bubble tea. So we start in China, Japan, and India. And we've essentially got pure green tea and then black tea that they're exporting. In Britain, we add milk and sugar. In America, we add ice. And in Japan in the 1980s, tea has now gone all the way back around the globe and is being served black and ice in certain coffee shops. There is a founder of um, this tea house. I don't speak Taiwanese. That's the name of it. Um, And this is a tea house in Taiwan. And the founder was in Japan and had iced tea for the first time and thought that was a really cool idea. So they started serving iced tea with milk and sugar under the name milk tea. And their specialty is to make sure that the sugar was infused and all the ingredients were nice and chilled, is their their baristas essentially would shake the tea before they served it. Which, since it had milk in it, which has protein, it would develop this little foam on top. And so it got the nickname bubble tea. So milk tea in the beginning was called bubble tea, but that's not what we would think of as bubble tea or boba now. That happens in 1988, where the director of product development brought a popular Taiwanese dessert into a meeting uh, called Yang. I think. I'm sorry. I'm very white. So white. Um, And this dessert has the the tapioca pearls in it. And she brought it to a meeting, and for funsies, she dumped it into her milk tea, and essentially bubble tea was born. Because although we mostly have exposure to milk, to bubble tea that just has the tapioca pearls in it, now, especially when you're going down to, like, St. Mark's, a little Tokyo neighborhood, there are bubble tea shops where you can put in grass jelly and this and soybeans and this, that, and the other. Like, a a large variety of different things, much like these traditional Asian desserts. So uh, bubble tea dates to the late 1980s, came to this country about a decade ago first appearing in Chinese restaurants. Because um, from Taiwan, it went both into China and into Japan. And now you can find them both in Chinese neighborhoods and Japanese neighborhoods, and sometimes neither. We like it. It's sweet and delicious. (laughs) So the last thing I want to talk about pretty briefly is kombucha. Was going to go more in-depth in it, but I just realized that there's so much to talk about when it comes to tea. So this is sort of the newest tea trend. it first pops up in uh, English, and it's called Indian tea fungus. And you start seeing references to it in the 1920s. So it comes from somewhere in East Asia. No one is really sure where it originated or when yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, or Mars. Who the hell knows? <laughs> Look at it. Um, every time I see it in someone's fridge, I'm like, ugh. Um, it, it starts getting mentioned in English writing in right after World War I. And then it gets popular in America during the 1970s because a group of people believed it could cure cancer. It does not. Mm -hmm. All I really want to say about it is, if you don't listen to Gastropod, you should. And they did an awesome episode about kombucha, which has the most original research there is out there. So I honestly don't want to do a book report on their work because, yeah, leave it up, take a photo. It's a really, really fascinating (laughs) podcast where they sat down and said, OK, what is this? Where does it come from? Uh, And it totally is connected to like new-agey cults. um, And they also go into the health benefits, and if it helps you or not. The answer right now is inconclusive. But it doesn't hurt you, yet, until it crawls out of your freezer and chokes you in the (laughs) middle of the night. Uh, No, it doesn't hurt you. And so anything that doesn't hurt you, why not? And it's a very, we've just added a new beverage to the panoply of drinks on our shelves. So that's it. For the moment, we're going to take a little 10-minute break, get yourself a beer, and then we're going to be back with story time. Thanks so much, everybody. Ooh, welcome back. Wow. Thanks. Uh, so this is a little piece we call story time. And uh, awesome. why don't you just go? why don't you go for it?
1: All right, let's go. Let's do this. All right. <laughs> so the art of reading tea leaves is generally called Reading Tea Leaves, but that is a really boring name, I think. Um, I feel like there should be a better name, and if you Google Reading Tea Leaves, you find the better name, uh, or one of the better names, which is Tassiography, which is fine. Yeah, ooh, a little bit, but only like a quiet, gentle ooh. If you really want to see the good one, go to the next slide. Yeah. Tassiomancy which is like this is wicked. It's like we're playing World of Warcraft like <laughs> we're casting spells We're bringing the children back from the dead. I don't know. It's great um, So if you had the choice between being a Tassiographer <laughs> versus a Tassiomancer uh, I think I would pick the latter because that's that's way cooler
0: Because you're Slytherin?
1: Because I'm Slytherin. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Come I don't on. Know,
0: I've only read the books once. I'm very amateur. Yeah. <laughs> Take your time, Soma.
1: Yeah, no sweat. Well, I got to get to the bottom of this. You got to get to this the bottom of that beer. Because, because. Um,
0: I'm almost done with mine.
1: When is there any sediment in it? No. No.
0: We don't really do that with so, beer anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some, sometimes, I maybe. S- I had an unfiltered wine recently at a Georgian restaurant. There would have been some sediment there. Not here, though.
1: So the secret is uh, if you are reading tea leaves, it's not just tea leaves. It's literally anything that will leave sediment in the bottom of a glass. Just some bubbles. Um, Does that yeah, count? yeah, you're like, that bubble is shaped like a. Don't tell round them yet. Thing. You have to tell yeah. them how to do this. Coffee, tea, wine, just a cup that has a bunch of trash in it. Like anything is possible. <laughs> okay. You can read anything. It's great. Like I personally, uh, I learned how to read tarot once upon a time, it's a lot of fun. Not because it's real, um, but because it's like a fun trick where you can just ask people absurd questions (laughs) and expect them to answer. And they answer. And it's great. And you're just like, "Uh, what's about this thing? What do you see here? And they're like, oh god, let me tell you a story. And you're like, it's just like you're drunk, but you're not. (laughs) Uh, So um, I never learned these things in normal ways. So the way that I learned reading tea leaves was I read something on Google Books. Um, (laughs) called Telling Fortunes by Tea Leaves, How to Read Your Fate in a (laughs) Teacup by Cicely Kent. Now this is actually, clearly Cicely Kent did not name this book uh, because you cannot read your own fate in a teacup. You have to read someone else's fate in a teacup. So even if I'm the best tassiomancer here, uh, I can't read my own leaves. I'm biased, yeah, Yeah, and it's just, it doesn't work. The magic doesn't work as you'll see from the slide that comes up later. So, this book, you look at this book and you're like, this book seems pretty good. And I'm like, not just pretty good. This book is really good. <laughs> First printing, nineteen twenty-two, second printing, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, tenth printing in 1946. And I would love to believe that every two or three years since then, there's been another printing.
0: They could have just printed like ten
1: at a time. <sighs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, Why learn to read tea leaves? A, to tell your fate in a cup. But B, let's just go to Sicily for this one. Um, There are few things more fascinating than personal discovery, and those who become students of divination by tea leaves or cards may safely be promised a taste of this pleasing sensation of achievement. It is limited to the few to discover the marvels of radium or the discomforts of the South (laughs) Pole. but a fragment of their glory is shared by those who find new evidence of the far-reaching knowledge <laughs> of symbolism. So, can you discover radio? No. Can you go to the South Pole? Maybe. But <laughs> we can all learn to read tea leaves, which is all we really need to become to So, who here is ready to read tea leaves? That sounds like everybody. Some. So, all right, preparation. Step one, you don't have to go to a graveyard, but it would make it more picturesque. Uh, the first thing that you need is a teacup, makes sense, right? That's where, that's where tea goes, so you do need tea. Uh, and it would also be good to have some hot water so that you can turn that tea leaf into actual tea. And you say someone, I don't have a thing like this. I got a coffee mug. And I say, get that coffee mug out of here. You cannot use it. You cannot use things with like tall sides or fluted edges or any of that crap. You want something that's shaped like this. Which is why I had to like go buy a bunch of bowls that kind of look like teacups today. I live in Chinatown, and I could not find anything that looked <laughs> like a teacup. But hey, I guess that's a Western teacup. Uh, so it goes. You, you thought you were going to say something. No? All right, quiet well, as a Teacups look
0: like that, but smaller. And it's all, yeah. You're doing fine. You're doing great. So Thank, you. Keep going. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Really um, here for
1: you. So who here is excited about? learning how to read tea leaves okay yeah so you're not the only one it is a rare occurrence nowadays to meet with three people in the course of a day and not find that one at least is deeply interested in force it's true it's true um uh is anyone here a man yeah you guys are assholes Uh, the male sex holds a loop and leaves us to perform these follies some ascribe it to man's superiority or is briefly summed up by a delightful member of their sex who, when declaiming against the possibility of the future being made visible, said with all apologies to you, I must say I am not so profoundly stupid as to believe in these things. It cannot be anything more than rot. Hashtag not all men. Um, okay. Hashtag more than rot. Right. Five easy steps to seeing the future. Step one, make some tea. That's about it. You can follow like a blog post that's like how to make tea. Just make sure that if the blog post says don't pour a bunch of tea leaves into a cup, you ignore that part, and you just put all of your tea leaves directly <laughs> into the cup. Not in a bag, not in a pot. Nope, put it into the cup. Step two, drink that <laughs> tea. Now, if you Google image search (laughs) drinking tea, you are always a white woman wearing a knit garment. (laughs) Very well lit. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, And then, once you're almost done, there's like a single teaspoon left. Um, So, in, in this time, you can do one of two things. One, you can concentrate a lot on what it is that you want your fortune told about. Or number two, you let your mind disconnect from the world. And Cicely's like, I encourage you to do both of them at the same time. (laughs) And you're like, good, good, I approve. Um, Once you're done, you have a little bit of tea in the bottom, a teaspoon. You swirl three times, and then you put your cup upside down like this. And you think real hard about (laughs) what it is that you want to be read about. and then then you you do your reading. (laughs) Um, So the way that this works is generally speaking, tea in in the bottom of the cup uh, are things that happen in the far future or the further future. Things that are around the edge of the rim are things that happen soon. Things that happen by the handle are like physically close to you and things that are far away from the handle, either far away from the handle or counterclockwise far from the handle are things that are far away from you. So the example is like, if you see a letter that is down at the bottom on the far side, it is a letter from far away that is on its way to you, like a postage letter, like a postage a letter. mail. Letter. Or if you see a picture of like a Gmail logo, G, it's <laughs> an email. Yeah, a big it's, G. It's yes. zipping through the air to me. Yes, it. yes. Um, so I showed up today with some tea and with some hot water that I got from my house this morning, and it was still it was still reasonably hot. Sure. Um, and we made tea, and yep. I gave Sarah a reading. So are you yep. ready for this reading? Yes, of course yep. you are. So the first thing that happened was we drank our tea.
0: That's your teacup, right?
1: Yeah, that's yeah. – well, we can pretend tell. it's yours. It doesn't have are lipstick all over it. All over yeah. it <laughs> yeah, so this was my teacup, spoiler alert. Um, and then you let there be a the little bit of water, and then you swirl, 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 and then you place it down like this. Um, I was a real – real Tasio answer when Sarah was doing it because she was trying to Instagram her at the same time and I was like, You have to focus, you have to focus. He yelled at me. Yeah, because I really been
0: swirling not necessarily my future, so or uh. my question. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. I plan on it answering everything.
1: So this is Sarah's cup.
0: That is definitely my
1: cup. Um and you know, we got some sprinkles of tea here. We got some tea leaves, some tea leaves, some tea leaves. So just let your mind wander for a second. Think about the different shapes you see. Think about the different images that you see. And then I'll highlight the ones that I found. Now, the best thing about Cicely Kent's book is that she outlines a million and (coughs) one different things that you can see. So it's very easy for you to just go down this list and be like, yeah, that one, that one, good. This is great. This is a lot of fun. Um, So the first thing is this right here. I think this one looks like a dragonfly. Tidings of unexpected occurrences, unlooked-for events, new and advantageous opportunities, sometimes new clothes or furniture. (laughs) So, this is near the top, but it's kind of far away from your lipstick, so I, I believe that you ordered something on the internet, maybe, <laughs> and it's some new clothes or furniture that's coming to well, you. Well,
0: Friday's Black Friday. So okay, yes. I loaded up my cart, but I didn't hit purchase yet yeah. because I'm waiting for those bargains. It's on its way. That um, must be what that means.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, this one right here. This one, I think it looks like an anchor, obviously. A uh, pleasing symbol of good and loyal friends, constantly in love and the realization of your wishes, an emblem of safety to a sailor. So you're a sailor. In the future, because that's the bottom of the cup, okay. so you're going to be pretty good at sea. You're going to go on a cruise. Why not? You went on one. Do I it again. I went
0: on one cruise in my entire life. That's where I <laughs> never do it again.
1: But it wasn't like it a, wasn't, like was a, a tr- sexy cruise. It was a
0: transatlantic crossing. So it was six days on a boat in the middle of January looking at nothing, and I was the only person under 65. So it wasn't, <laughs> it was more about... But it was safe. <laughs> uh... <yeah. laughs> Yeah. Yeah, good.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, And then I see these right here look like rocks. (laughs) Now, these prepare you for alarms and agitation, but if good signs appear, you'll eventually find a smooth path through your life. So this is pretty close to the dragonfly, Um, so I think that maybe there will be some, like, out-of-stock notifications, (laughs) but the people that you were buying this from will respect the fact that it was in your cart, and then post-Black Friday they will still ship it when they get new stuff, new stock, yeah. So you rotate the cup a little bit and you see some more things. We've rotated to the whatever side. Um, Now this, this right here, I think this looks like a key. And I think this looks like a flaming torch, obviously. So those two together. Like a rocket <laughs> those, <head. laughs> those two together, some uh, discovery or the development of a patent leads to you becoming famous. So
0: specific. So
1: that's further that's further down. I
0: don't have any patents pending, but it's well, further down. Yeah, it's yeah. like the
1: key is at the very bottom. So I would say maybe like cool. give it, you know. I six have to work months. on the
0: straw straws idea.
1: Okay. Straw straws. Yeah. The
0: wave of the future. <laughs> <laughs> and the past. They're all the
1: same. Um, this guy right here, I'd say that's a, a kneeling figure and luckily kneeling figure is in there. A new enterpriser project. Who care should be taken to think it over well. Do nothing rationally and seek reliable advice. So your straw, straw enterprise is going to be good, but only if you really pay attention to what's happening. Um, and then these guys down here, this guy, this guy, obviously a beetle, um, unrests. Disagreement. Several beetles. There's a risk of slander and abuse <laughs> by those whom you regard as friends. So, whoever you go I got my ad on you. when Catty you go into business Soma. with someone with straw straws, watch your back because mm-hmm. you're gonna get asked.
0: They're gonna slander me.
1: And then down at the very bottom, uh, I think it's a submarine. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <clears throat> And you out there in the audience (laughs) might be like, what is this garbage? What is this garbage? But to those of an inquiring or doubting turn of mind, there may arise the very natural question as to why one-shaped tea leaf should meet a hat and another a table. It is useless to point out these objects are perfectly represented by the leaves. Go to hell. A submarine? (laughs) That's what it is. Don't be such a doubting Debbie. Um, Other things I saw, I saw a caterpillar. Sure, right
0: there. Wasn't that other things before, though?
1: that's part of beetles. Beetles are caterpillars. This one was sure. just really long. I thought it was funny. You're like, you to be criticized unkindly. That's terrible. See,
0: it's bitch Bitches talking shit.
1: Additionally, cauliflower, a cave, macaroni, <laughs> a camel with a small t and a coffin, <laughs> and I chain entangled with an onion or a Chinese lantern <laughs> and a pair of stilts. So <laughs> I think that there's not, like tarot cards, get out of my life. It's just tea leaves or nothing from here on out for me.
0: So all of these have to appear together, a laden camel, a small tea, and a coffin? Yeah, yeah, but
1: make sure it is a laden camel and not like a, a flyout camel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's okay. important. Cool. So yeah. um, if you are interested in becoming <laughs> as good at this as I am, uh, telling Fortunes by Tea Leaves, How to Read Your Fate, not really your fate, in a teacup by Cicely Kent with 20 illustrations, which I don't know if those were actually in the Google <laughs> Books version, but who needs them when you have such excellent descriptions and when all of the things in the tea leaves are just obviously, self-evidently, what they appear to be. <laughs> all right, you the can not now. Yeah. <laughs>
0: don't believe some our teacups are still up here so you can check it out and read it for yourself I'm talking about something totally different I'm talking about pumpkin spice Yeah. I feel like it's a thing that people like whatever they love to hate it now but delicious bring me everything pumpkin flavored I can have pumpkin flavored gum I can have pumpkin spice mallows I can have I'm already getting lost in here eggos I can have non fat Greek yogurt I can have other Greek yogurt. I can have <laughs> soda. I can have everything. It is a, a about a billion dollar industry at, at this point. It is wait, like huge. Wait, wait,
1: wait. Let's go back in time for a second. Previous slide, previous slide. Boop. So uh, someone I know sent me a text message yesterday. And it is uh, blah, blah, blah. Some well, article on Quartz about Cracker Jacks, mass-produced marshmallows. And in this article on Quartz, it says at the time, food historian author Sarah Loman notes, oh. marshmallows in one's kitchen was considered very modern as well as labor-saving.
0: I was quoted in Quartz yesterday about <laughs> the research that I've done on the history of um, sweet potato casserole covered in marshmallows because that's a weird thing, and that's basically why I start researching something. I go like, well, that's weird. When do we start doing that? The most exciting. Both of those articles are actually on my blog. To my original sweet potato casserole article. But then also, um, so the earliest potato casserole recipe comes from 1970 to 1918. It's a little unclear. But I found an earlier recipe dated to 1900, which is uh, a lima bean casserole with marshmallows on top.
1: Did you make
0: it? So fucking literally I did. (laughs) On my blog, uh, fourpoundsflower.com. I'm sure if you just... Forward
1: slash lima beans.
0: If you, yeah, if you Google lima beans with marshmallows, I'm sure... (laughs) That article is going to come up, and then the whole history will be revealed to you. But that is another lecture. Today we're talking about pumpkin spice lattes, which pretty much undeniably created the entire pumpkin spice industry. Here's the craziest part, Soma. I had my first pumpkin spice latte this week. I know. (laughs) Part of it is because I uh, don't really drink coffee. I started drinking coffee Almost immediately after the twenty sixteen presidential election, <laughs> so in the panoply of vices that I could have taken on in the past two years, that <laughs> one is not so bad. Um, so I've just never really had coffee before, so this is the first time. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do this thing. I don't think I've ever had one.
1: had one ever.
0: No. Well, we'll get to my review I a little bit later. I get confused when I order coffee. So, <laughs> I mean, that's actually part of it. So, all right, let's talk briefly about Starbucks history. Um, you know, this is the original Starbucks in Seattle. And before, um, in the 70s and 80s, they were really focused on being this very upscale brand. And they were a coffee roaster first and a coffee shop second was their sort of idea. But um, as they began to expand in the 90s, you know, that's when they really integrated this whole language of. Uh, venti grandi tall, lattes, da da da. When the first one opened in New York City in the 1980s, the New York Times reviewed it and uh, had to phonetically spell out lattes so people knew how to say it. But that was part of the appeal. that This was about exclusivity. This was the first time we were spending $4 on a cup of coffee. Um, it was about, it, it, again, affordable luxuries. So the people who needed, this comes from this really interesting article on in Forbes.com, people who needed to feel included the most were the ones who understood the language of Starbucks the best, that needed to show off the cachet of having a Starbucks cup. And it was so tied into money, privilege, and success in the 90s that um, I'm, I'm going to tell you about another great podcast at the end of this, but one story they told was of a guy who was trying to like get started in, in the financial business, and he would buy one Starbucks on Monday and just keep the cup and fill it with his home, home coffee every day, because it was so important to come in with that Starbucks logo on the cup. Now, what's so interesting is, of course, that Starbucks went from this to sitting in one Starbucks, looking at another Starbucks, <laughs> <laughs> and the Simpsons episode where the whole mall is a Starbucks. You don't
1: want to have people have to turn around, though, to go to Starbucks. Turn around and go driving, to the Starbucks yeah, behind no, them? that's the thing is, like, if, if they're driving, don't make them make Nobody a of that's, <laughs> that's dangerous that's <laughs> dangerous i mean
0: and they do this in cities where it's one across from the other two. and this happened uh, really pretty specifically between about 1998 and 2008 they went from about 1600 stores to 16000 stores um, so this was under a particular ceo who said we're going to we're going to do both we're going to be both exclusive and ubiquitous okay they wanted to strike a balance between both and the pumpkin spice latte happens right in the middle of that change. So, 98 to 2008 is the big upscale, Starbucks on Starbucks and Starbucks. 2003 is when the pumpkin spice latte is introduced. And it was created by this guy in his pumpkin <laughs> shirts,
1: <laughs>
0: Peter Dukes. Peter Dukes was the head of product development in Starbucks, and in early 2003, they wanted—they had some success with like um, a mocha peppermint latte, and so they wanted to introduce a new seasonal flavor. They had success with seasonal flavors, more specifically the LTO—the limited time offer. It's only around once a year, just like Thanksgiving, so you got to get in and get it right. So, they actually, pumpkin spice was one of about a dozen different flavors of lattes they were testing. And it didn't test the highest. There were a couple flavors that beat it in initial tests. But there was something to it. And more importantly, there was nothing else like it on the market at the time. So, they decided to further develop the pumpkin spice idea. Story goes is that they decked out the R&D lab with Thanksgiving decorations. Everyone brought in their family's recipe of pumpkin pie, and they would take a slice and mush it up and pour espresso over it, and then kind of eat it, and then decide what to make. So what they eventually made with this sort of secret sauce that you could, then a syrup that you could squirt into a latte, and it's called pumpkin spice latte, but it doesn't have any pumpkin in it because it's pumpkin spice. It's about pumpkin spice. It's not supposed to have pumpkin in it. So it focuses on uh, the primary flavor chemicals of different um, flavors and spices that you might put in pumpkin pie. Like, for example, it includes vanillin, which is the primary flavor chemical of vanilla. But it also has, this is what kind of really amazes me, um, there are, I used to know individually what these do, but there are also different chemical combinations that make up the experience of eating a pumpkin pie. Like lactones give you um, sort of caramely dairy notes and uh, ketones are like fruity notes from the pumpkin. Pyrazines are the top like baked, sort of intense flavor of a pumpkin pie. So I think that's so fascinating that it's not just blending together flavors of, of spices, but it's trying to blend together the experience of a pumpkin pie within a drink. That was the point. So they released it in 2003 in two test markets, DC and Vancouver, and they couldn't keep up with sales. and. Bajillions have been sold since. The last statistics I could find were from like 2012, and at that point, like 300 million had been sold. So one Did bajillion. you like
1: it?
0: We're not there yet, Selma. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> because, you know, Starbucks represented uh, power and exclusivity, but now the pumpkin spice latte tends to represent the opposite. <laughs> This are, she and she looks like that lady from your tea picture. She's just like this, um, so it it's Starbucks went from being very exclusive to being basic. Um, and uh, this podcast that I going to recommend to you also talks about the origin of the word basic bitch, which I think is really interesting too. But this is like synonymous with being a basic bitch, as loving fall, and loving a pumpkin spice latte. And it also happened at a time when the CEO that expanded Starbucks retired. He stepped down. And then Starbucks was doing things like releasing like a, a caffeinated sorbet beverage. Um, and they continued to expand stores. This guy steps back up in 2012. They closed stores. They retrained people how to make espresso. So Starbucks sort of it flew too close to the sun and its pumpkin spice wings melted a little bit for a moment. They closed about half of the stores that they opened. But now with this the old CEO, back again, they're sort of restructuring. Um, so there's sort of two extremes to what Starbucks is playing with right now. The pumpkin spice latte is fine. The other extreme of this is probably the fucking uni- unicorn Frappuccino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And the unicorn Chef Frappuccino's friend is they're um, testing mobile-only stores where there are no uh, people, other than I think one that hands you the drink, but you do all the ordering in advance online and you just walk into the store and grab your drink and leave. So like peak efficiency, even more so than the drive-ins which are pretty common for Starbucks now. But then also they're going the other extreme, they're going back to their roots and they're opening up Starbucks groceries. There is one scheduled to open in New York City, TBD. There's already one in Seattle and maybe like Milan, a couple other cities, but Tokyo and New York are next. And they're these big fancy spaces where they are roasting coffee. They're making drinks that are price pointed at $10 and up. Um, I think there's even like a bar involved here. And again, it's going back to this idea that it's sort of a coffee roastery first and an interesting. I mean, there's a lot of like, oh, here they are. Here's all the. It's one of those things where they just throw, it's like word jumbles together. So the it's the
1: ultimate expression of our passion for craft.
0: Right. <laughs> the rarest, most extraordinary coffee Starbucks has to offer. My favorite one is the third one, immersive spaces that invite you to discover and explore. Just words, 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 words that mean something fancy. So these are the two extremes they're going with. So how did baby's first PSL go? Um, I have to say, I was really underwhelmed. No. Yes. No. I love pumpkin pie. Pie is undeniably my favorite part of Thanksgiving. And I love pumpkin pie. Let's call it the original LTO, limited time offer. Pumpkin pie once a year. Come on, pilgrims, let's roll. Um, But, like, it just didn't taste very good. And, like, I, I, however, it didn't taste very good. However, go. I appreciate the entire industry at spawns. <laughs> I will take a pumpkin flavored thing anytime I think that is delicious. Give it to me, especially if it's a pumpkin spice flavored pumpkin pie in my mouth. <laughs> and uh, do you just a comment that you wanted to say before I wrapped up.
1: I don't even know. Alright. <laughs> Brokenhearted.
0: Add this to your podcast list too. Yeah, this is a relatively new podcast called Household Name. Uh, it's it, it explores the stories behind famous brands. And it is not uh, entirely food, but a good proportion of them are about food. And they did a whole episode about Starbucks and the pumpkin spice latte. Totally fascinating. I'm enjoying. I also listened to one on Jello, Loving it. Add it to your blah, blah, blah. They're not paying me to say this. Um, but listen, I took this photo at 14 minutes and 48 seconds in because I knew I was going to tell you about it. <laughs> so that's all we got for right now. We're taking another little break if you want to grab a drink. And we'll be back with Soma talking about whoops caffeine thanks everybody
1: who is ready for one final talk (laughs) or we could just we me and sarah could just give talks all night too but i don't know probably have to drink more so this is a story of me going to work uh once upon a time i went to work as some of us do sometimes uh, and i was on this wonderful wonderful d train training my way up training my way up and suddenly I had a realization and that realization was I am going to die. (laughs) Not like in general I'm going to die, not like oh I hate the subway I'm going to die, but like I am going to die right now or within the next like five minutes. This is very unfortunate. Uh, This is terrible. I'm going to die. So if we want to analyze my symptoms, um, number one, my pulse was going crazy, number two, I was totally having a heart attack. And number three, I was pretty sure that I'm going to die. So all of these things put together, I'm pretty sure I'm having a heart attack and I'm going to die. So if we look at this map, there are hospitals somewhere around here. Um, but look, I'm like the only person in New York that has health insurance, so I thought, what if I go to my doctor instead? Because the train was like here, and my doctor's like here, so it seemed like it might be faster to just go to my doctor instead of hanging out at an ER. So I get off the train and I'm like, hey, doctor's office, I'm dying. Can I come by? And they're like, sure, why not? Stop on by, no big deal. So great. So I stop by, and I'm like. Hey doctor, <laughs> like I have to wait in the waiting room for like 20 or 30 minutes, and I'm just like, guys, <laughs> I'm dying here, <laughs> and they're like, it's a terrible joke. So eventually I get in and I see the doctor, and he's like, hello, how are you doing? And I'm like, hello, I'm dying, and it's not a time for dad jokes. Uh, my heart, <laughs> it's having an attack, and I'm going to die. And he's like, oh, that's that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> except you are not having a heart attack and you are not dying. Uh, You're actually fine." And I'm like, this is not really what I wanna hear right now. Did you go to medical school? And so I'm like, let's review what I know right now. (laughs) Number one, my pulse is going crazy. Number two, I'm totally having a heart attack. And number three, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. And he's like, oh, it's a pretty good list you got there. Uh, You're not having a heart attack. You're having a panic attack. And I'm like, no, look, number two, number one, number three, all these together, I'm definitely having a heart attack. And he's like, no, what you're having is a panic attack, mostly, somewhat, kind of, because the medical uh, description for pretty sure I'm going to die uh, is a sense of impending doom And so, also when you have a heart attack, you have a sense of impending doom, but also when you have a panic attack, you have a sense of impending doom. So he's just like, you're fine, it's no big deal, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, I'm trusting you right now, and I'm also pretty sure I'm dying, but it's fine, we can work through this. (laughs) So he's like, okay, panic attack, Uh, did something crazy happen to you on the train, something terrible and bad? And I'm like, no, nothing terrible and bad. And he's like, has work been really stressful recently? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, work is fine, there's no big deal. And he keeps going through this list of things about like all the terrible stuff that might happen in my life. And like I live in New York. I can be neurotic, but like nothing that big <laughs> happened. Everything just seemed normal. And eventually, he gets to, like, how much coffee do you drink every day? And I go to laugh at him. And I'm like, I don't really drink coffee. And then I'm like, oh, shit. So like I said, I work from home most of the time. And I didn't have to go into work for a few weeks. And I was getting pretty lazy. And I was like, you know, I should leave my house to force myself to do work. So I started going to a coffee shop every morning. And I don't know if you know what they sell at coffee shops, but it's coffee. <laughs> and I was like, I'm a loser if I don't start drinking coffee. So I'm just going to have a coffee, or two coffees, or three coffees, or whatever it takes to you know, get my work done every single morning for a few weeks. So uh, caffeine, it fucked me up. It was not a good friend to me. Uh, And so I wasn't having a heart attack, I was just having a panic attack uh, that was brought on by all of the caffeine that I was drinking. So this is the groundwork for what we're talking about tonight, which is my friend and enemy, caffeine. So how does caffeine work? Why did caffeine destroy me? Why do all of you live off of caffeine? All that and more will be answered. And it all goes back, who here went to like high school at some point in their life? who here took like a uh, biology class they learn about like cell walls and ribosomes and stuff like that yeah maybe you remember Apt so Apt uh, no it's ATP guys it's ATP <laughs> <laughs> slideshow played from current slide great it's not an apartment. Uh, <laughs> this guy. Okay. So uh, (laughs) this is the source of energy for the cell. And you're like, is it the source of energy for the cell? Because I heard something else was a source of energy for the cell. I heard that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And you're like, (laughs) like, yes, that's true. That's true. Um, But the point of mitochondria is it takes in like glucose and then it makes ATP. And then your cell is like, yeah, ATP, we're going to use ATP to do stuff. And ATP becomes ADP. And it's just like, They did not have animated GIFs when I was in school. (laughs) And so if I had this, I would have learned a lot more and I wouldn't have had to do all this research on Giphy. But that's what had to happen, so it was fine. So ATP, ADP, AMP is another thing that sometimes show up. The A in all of these is adenosine. And it looks like this. (laughs) Um, And so when you have ATP, Uh, ADP, AMP, like your cells doing a bunch of stuff with adenosine and eventually it's like I got too much of this laying around and so like your downstairs neighbor just kind of kicks it out on the curb doesn't put it in a trash bag or anything Um, so as your cells are doing work, they're doing all this stuff with mitochondria, with glucose uh, with ATP and they start to just kick out more and more trash more and more of this adenosine and it just like your body's filling up with it, your blood, your in. in per cellular stuff is filling up with it. Um, And then there are these other things called adenosine receptors, which receive adenosine. Um, And it looks like this when it happens. (laughs) And so (laughs) basically what happens in your body uh, is you have a bunch of adenosine receptors. And as your body does more and more work, your cells do more and more work, it creates more and more adenosine. And all of your adenosine, where does it go? To the adenosine receptors. It's great. Side effect of this, you get sleepy. So when your cells work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard, they produce this byproduct. This byproduct goes to bed in its nice, comfortable beds, um, and this is what makes you sleepy. Now, when you have caffeine, when you drink a coffee, and all this caffeine goes into your body, you're, you're, this caffeine is like a, that guy that was in Sarah's slide that was like partying real hard like up here uh, and then he crashes and he's like, you know where I would love to be is in your bed. <laughs> and so the caffeine goes into the adenosine receptors and the adenosine is like, I need to go somewhere, but it doesn't get to go anywhere. So when coffee is inside of your adenosine receptors, when caffeine is in there, it's like, I'm not going to get sleepy because I don't know who this guy is. And it's kind of creepy that there's something in my receptor. <laughs> um, so what's happening is instead of adenosine going to bed and making you sleepy, what is happening is the caffeine is getting in the way and presenting, preventing the adenosine from going where it needs to go to make you sleepy. And they're like, that's great, Soma. I'll, I'll, who knows who this Pokemon is? Snorlax, Snorlax right? The <laughs> sleepiest Pokemon. It's the only time I've gotten a question of trivia right. So <laughs> what makes you really good at coffee and me like a train wreck when I drink coffee? <laughs> so there are a bunch of reasons, and we'll hit a few of them. Uh, first up is tolerance. So let's say that this is our body, and we have all these beds, and they're taken up by caffeine, and the adenosine is here. And it's like, please let me go to sleep. So what your body does is it does something called upregulating, where it just makes more beds. Uh, and then suddenly Snorlax can go to sleep. And then there are more receptors for adenosine. And then your body's like, great, I have like 40 times more beds. Well, you to take one cup of coffee. You need to then drink two or four or eight or 16 or 32 or 64 cups of coffee in order to get the same effect because your body keeps creating more and more of these receptors in order to receive this adenosine. Uh, because your body's like, look, I know I should be getting sleepy. And I'm not getting sleepy. So I'm going to kind of counteract this stuff. Uh, and it works out great. But the real fun one, like tolerance, is boring. Like you just drink more coffee. Um, the real fun is fun one is genetics. So uh, CYP1A2, um, it is a uh, gene in your body, and there are two versions of it. There's <laughs> a fast version and there's a slow version, <laughs> of it. and it deals with how you metabolize uh, how you metabolize caffeine. Um, so when you metabolize caffeine, caffeine's flying around your body, sleeping in all the beds. And basically, uh, an enzyme rolls out. And it's like, get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of these beds. Adenosine needs to go to sleep. Uh, And if you're a fast metabolizer, basically, you kick out caffeine much, much more quickly than if you're a slow metabolizer. So up to five times more quickly, or uh, some people are like really super fast metabolizers, and it's like 20 times faster. Uh, But the idea is, if you are a fast metabolizer of coffee genetically, you can drink a lot more coffee Uh, without it affecting you in a crazy way or it affects you much more quickly. So you'll drink coffee and then like two hours later you'll be fine. Whereas if you're a slow metabolizer of coffee, it's more like four or five hours, eight hours. It takes much longer to work its way through your system. Um, So these people could just drink coffee and then it perks them up and then it disappears. And the slow people drink like two cups and they're good all day. Mm -hmm. But that's just inside of us. And we'll come back to my research on myself uh, on this front. Then there's roasting. So what is going to happen is I'm going to say, what roast? And you're going to say, dark roast. you ready? One, two, three. What roast? Dark roast. Yeah, so everyone's like, dark roast. It's like way more hardcore. It's the hardest core. It's bitter. It's a jolt. It goes right into your body, so it must have more caffeine. Not true. So when you roast coffee, coffee that just comes out of like the coffee plant, it's just a bean. It's spongy. It's green, it's grassy, doesn't really taste like coffee, so all you have to do is roast it. So you basically cook it for a while, get it nice and toasty, you can have light roast, you can have medium roast, you can have dark roast, and people are are a little bit obsessed with how much caffeine is in these different roasts. What happens is as you get a darker, darker roast, it starts to lose the uh, inherent characteristics of the bean you start to taste more of the roast flavor instead of the coffee bean flavor. So by the time you get to dark roast, you've kind of given up uh, the essential characteristic of that bean, whereas light roast is more representative of what the bean is instead of what the roasting process tastes like. Uh, the reason is, as you go down, more and more uh, like essential oil compounds and things like that, volatile chemicals, are destroyed because of all of the heat roasted at like 400 degrees or whatever. So one of the chemicals that is destroyed as you roast more and more is caffeine. So light roast does have more caffeine than dark roast, but it's like negligible. It's like 5%. It's no big deal. If someone's like, light roast, dark roast, what do you want? And you really want more caffeine, the answer is "Eh, it doesn't really matter because it's just 5% and I'm not really going to be 5% more awake as a result of this. Now, when I started talking about that jolt, about that power, about that super force of dark roast, you were like, no, what you really want to talk about is espresso. Mm-hmm. It's like intense. I don't think I've ever had an espresso in my life. I don't think I've ever had a latte. Literally, the only thing I drink is drip coffee because I don't know anything about coffee. I don't even know what a latte is. It's fine. So uh, drip coffee versus espresso. <coughs> Which has more caffeine? Drip, drip. Do you know that? True, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, so um, because we're scientists, who's scientists? All of us? Yeah, hands up, everyone? Everyone? Yeah? Okay, okay, I get it. I get it. Um, So if we are going to measure drip coffee versus espresso, we have to be fair, right? We have to do it on an ounce by ounce basis. This is like a shot. We're going to pretend that's drip, and we're going to pretend this is espresso. That one is espresso. So um, espresso has 60 milligrams of coffee per ounce, whereas drip, has 12 milligrams per ounce. Get ready for a lot of charts. What I teach at Columbia is like data analysis. So, okay. Uh, so this is our espresso. It has 60 milligrams uh, per ounce, and you really just drink an ounce unless you have a double. Um, how big is a coffee cup? Yeah, this is great. This is wild. Okay, so the standard size of a oh come on. There's a little coffee cup down there. So. The smallest standard coffee cup size, because there's not a real standard, is either six ounces or a six ounce cup with a five ounce pour inside of it. So if we multiply out 12, that's gonna give us about 72 milligrams of caffeine, which is definitely more than espresso. Not a lot more, but a little bit more. But if we're talking about the USDA, which is where these numbers come from, when the USDA measures how much is in a coffee, or if you get like a small coffee at Starbucks, it is going to be eight ounces which is 96 milligrams of coffee which is more uh far more than having an espresso uh, but then if you go to like europe or japan they have like 250 milliliter cups or 200 milliliter cups they're just drinking espresso anyway so it doesn't really matter um if you go to starbucks maybe you're like when i buy coffee i always feel like a coward if i buy a small and i'm just like i can do better <laughs> than this i can i can down more this is why i ended up having panic attack Um, So I was like, no, it's fine. I'll get something bigger. I can handle it. So if you get 12 ounces of coffee at Starbucks, according to math, uh, you'll end up with 144 milligrams. Or if you get 20 ounces, you get 240 milligrams. So if we're trying to figure out how much coffee is in like a cup of coffee, a lot of it depends on what size coffee you're drinking and how you kind of do that math. So anywhere from 72 to 240 milligrams of coffee so generally the idea of like a a safe amount or a safe normal amount is between 200 and 400 milligrams a day but that really depends on who you are how you metabolize coffee whether you're like a a smoking woman on birth control (laughs) or like an older (laughs) japanese man so like a smoking woman on birth control can drink like 10 times as much coffee as like an old japanese man and metabolize it it's crazy. So, okay, we did all of this math with 12 milligrams per ounce, right? Because like that's how math works. You multiply it out, it makes sense. Now, BuzzFeed, the bastion of really good like data journalism. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. <laughs> they do really good stuff. Um, so they got a lab to go get a bunch of like different coffee from like Starbucks 7-Eleven. Dunkin' Donuts from different places in San Francisco in New York, and they measured the amount of caffeine in Dunkin' Donuts coffee, and it was of course 12 milligrams per ounce because that's what the USDA says. Uh, And then they went to Starbucks, and it was 17 milligrams per ounce, which is 40% more roughly, uh, which means that where we previously lived in this world, where a 12 ounce is 144 milligrams, that's for non Starbucks branded coffee if we move to Starbucks brand of coffee suddenly you're up to 204 milligrams how much ca- caffeine is in an energy drink more less only 111 milligrams in red bull which is like baby's first coffee so if, <laughs> if you're going and you're drinking like 12 ounces of coffee from Starbucks that's like you're sitting down at your desk and you're slamming two Red Bulls. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, if if you go to the caffeineinformer.com, um they break all of this down for you. So if you're drinking like a 20 ounce of their standard coffee, it's like 410 milligrams, it's just so much caffeine. It's so much caffeine. Maybe you have a great tolerance. Maybe you have a lot of beds in your body. It's fine. Um, now, why does Starbucks have a such higher concentration of caffeine than something like Dunkin' Donuts? Now, if you only know a little bit about coffee, you might be like, well, I know there are two kinds of coffee beans, Robusta and Arabica. And this one is cheaper and has a ton more caffeine. It has like twice as much caffeine. Um, But see, that's it having more caffeine. Um, it's che- it just it doesn't taste as good if you buy cheap coffee. That's probably what you're getting as opposed to the fancy stuff over there. But it turns out that Starbucks is really proud that they only use the fancy stuff. So it's probably something like uh, they grind it really, really small, or they steep it longer, or there's more, more time for the water to be in contact with, the, ca- or with the, the ground, the grinds, yes, in order to make the caffeine. So Starbucks, wild, wild world. Um, can't trust anyone, can't trust the USDA, you can't trust <laughs> math, everything is wrong, everything is a lie. But you can trust scientists, right? Scientists are good people, you can believe everything they say. So when you look at studies that are done about caffeine, they're like caffeine is really good, it makes you live forever. Or caffeine is really bad, you die when you're like two years old. Like prob- probably all of these are true, right? And it's like one of those things where like every week something new comes out as it cures all the cancers, it causes all the cancers. So this was a study about cardiovascular disease and coffee consumption. And one of the good ways to do analysis of uh, studies is not to just do your own study, but to look at studies other people did, or in theory it's a good way to do things. Um, And so what you do is you do a meta-analysis and you say, look, I'm going to grab every study that has to do with And I'm going to create some rules. And every single study that passes those rules, uh, we will let in. So we're only going to let in good studies that do like X, Y, and Z. And then we're going to look at them or we're going to come to a conclusion. Because probably everyone screwed a little bit of stuff up. But like, if we combine everyone's screw ups, we might come to some sort of answer. So this ended up being a survey of uh, 36 different studies. Yeah, 36 different studies, 1.2 million people were involved uh, in this meta-analysis. And it came out that like coffee's fine, coffee's great. Uh, If you drink no coffee, if you drink like five or more cups of coffee, you're probably basically the same. If you drink between two and four cups of coffee, you actually are healthier, you have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. And I was like, wow, this is great. Like the New York Times wrote about this one. It just seemed like a really, really good, solid uh, study because it studied so many people. And I was like, oh, a meta analysis. Let's see what they did, like what their cutoff was for whether something was a good study or not. Blah, 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 blah. Number four, things that they cut out, no confounders were adjusted for. So, like, if you literally pretended to do any sort of real science, being like, okay, maybe people who drink coffee always go running. Maybe people who always drink coffee, like, never go running and only drink Mountain Dew. Maybe people that don't drink coffee only drink soda instead something like that, if you spent even like a split second thinking about that, they were like, sure, sure, this study is great, <laughs> come on in. So like, are you going to live forever? I don't know. I don't know. But if there's one thing that we do know. It's that if we drink coffee, you're smarter, you're more alert, you have better memory, all this stuff is great. Now, the way that every single one of these studies works is they take a bunch of people into a lab and they have them do a test. They give some people coffee, they give some people a placebo, and then they measure how well you do on a test. Sounds totally reasonable, right? The other thing they do is they're like, look, I don't want you to like pre-game with coffee and then just be good at this because you already had some coffee. So what we're going to do is we're going to be like, don't drink coffee for like that morning and then come in and do this test, and it'll be fine. So people come in, and they're probably used to drinking like a cup or two in the morning. And they sit down and they're going to do this test and they're like, here's your cup of coffee, wink, wink, and it's a placebo and then they drink this fake coffee and then they start to do this test. Now this would be fine if coffee didn't actually have any sort of other effects on you except make you smarter or have a better memory, Uh, but coffee really, really is an addictive substance and if you don't have coffee in the morning, you will get tired. You will get irritable. You will not be able to pay attention. So by virtue of these studies trying to control for the fact that caffeine makes you better at doing things, they basically make you go into withdrawal, and then they make you take a test. (laughs) So this test is like, is someone who's in coffee withdrawal better at doing something than someone who's getting their coffee fix? And obviously, (laughs) the answer is like, if you're getting your fix, you're going to do a little bit better. So I don't know how they should do this study, but the way that they do it is, generally speaking, not very good and it's just because everyone's addicted to coffee so like is coffee a white knight is it a terrible demon i don't (laughs) know it's it's questionable and on top of that uh, one of the big reasons why coffee studies are either like things are good things are bad things are confusing is because of those fast and slow metabolizers so some studies will look at other studies like meta-analyses and they'll find out that if you are a fast metabolizer it's good for you to drink coffee. Um, you're the people who gain all of the benefits from drinking coffee. It goes through your system very quickly, it keeps you alert, and then it gets out. People who are slow metabolizers keep that caffeine in their system. Uh, that caffeine is not necessarily good for you, makes your body work harder to get rid of it, so there's more time for it to like cause trouble and give you like cancers or whatever coffee does. Um, so it's really like, do you fall into the fast metabolizers boat? or the slow metabolizers vote. This is not a tolerance thing. This is just the way that you were built in your genetics inside of you. And so you're like, hmm, hmm. am I a fast metabolizer? Am I a slow metabolizer? Am I going to live forever if I drink coffee? Am I going to die at two years old? So that's what I was curious about. So once upon a time, I signed up for 23andMe because I didn't care about privacy, and I was like 24 (laughs) years old. It's fine. Uh, Don't talk to my insurance company, guys. And so they give you all this stuff that you can learn about yourself and I'm like, all right, control F, caffeine, coffee. And it's like, hey, Jonathan, based on your genetics, you're likely to drink slightly less caffeine than average if you drink caffeine at all. What a cop out. (laughs) I drink 293 milligrams per day. The average person drinks 256 (laughs) milligrams per day. That doesn't make any sense. So I'm like, okay, there's a scientific details tab. I click that and I scroll down and I'm like, oh hey, I know about, where does it say it? It doesn't say it here. Well they're like, here's some genes, here's a gene. You have one variant associated with consuming more caffeine. And I'm like, wait, you just told me I consume less caffeine. So I guess everyone else has like way more variants about consuming more caffeine. But I was like, this isn't good enough. I want more like lit up stuff that says C that makes me feel like I'm cool. So. There's this beautiful thing on the internet. Uh, who here has ever looked at like WebMD to see whether you're going to die and the answer is <laughs> you're always going to die? Yeah. So if you want the genetic version of this, it's called SMPedia. So Wikipedia is like a terrible cesspool of nothing, right? Now let's take that and combine it with scientific studies that link to 23andMe uh, <laughs> to your specific genetic data. And this is what you have here. So it's basically like an SMP is the thing that 23andMe analyzes so you can go to a page for one like rs762551 and it gives like here all the studies that dealt with this smp and then you can click a link over here and it will link you directly to the page on 23andme because they let you just browse all of your genetic stuff on 23andme and i can be like great this random ass number uh for cyp1a2 we talked about that before i'm aa if i'm aa That means I'm a faster caffeine metabolizer if I'm a smoker or heavy coffee consumer. So (laughs) I got to start doing some bad stuff. It'll be (laughs) fine. And then I find another one of these random things. And I'm like, great, I'm going to click this too. It's going to be fun. And I'm CC, which is the boring kind. Uh, And I'm like, okay, I don't know what any of this means. There's like a magnitude and a summary. And then they're like, here's what magnitude means. Literally nothing matters. And everything (laughs) is basically a (laughs) lie. Cause they're all like 1.5, 0, 1.2, and you're just like, no, come on, <laughs> I want something that's 10. But no, nothing's worth my time. BS. Yes, it's real sad. It's real sad. So literally, the only thing that I know is that like, if I if I go to the doctor and I'm trying to find out whether I'm gonna die or not, he's just like, no, everything's coffee. And like, is it true? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, lessons learned. Lessons learned. Let's just review for a second. Uh, number one. If you're ever scared of something, if you ever feel unhappy, the fun way to say it is you have a sense of impending doom. (laughs) Maybe you'll get to go to the hospital. I don't know. Um, Number two, we should all go back to high school and learn about parts of the cell again. and We should spell ATP correctly. Uh, and number number three, like energy drinks, Red Bull, what a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> Just give me like one of those 32 ounce things from Starbucks and I'll I won't be happy, I'll be dead. but maybe you'll be happy. it'll be great. All right, so that is all we have for you tonight.